Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Robbinsville. Thank you for joining us. We trust that the teaching of God's Word will speak to you. Right. Well, good morning once again. What an awesome praise uh, and, and a prayer that we have, that that is really the heart uh, of this church and hopefully the cry of your heart as well, that Christ will be magnified in your life. So uh, what an exciting thing that when we think about magnifying Christ in our life, we are joining with all of creation singing that song. We're joining with believers from around the world proclaiming that same thing. May Christ be magnified in our lives. That is really our heart uh, today and really the, the thrust of our sermon this morning. So we invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 5 if you have your Bible and want to follow along. Uh, we will have these up on the screen, but some of these texts are a little bit longer today, so it may help you to be able to look at it there in your own, uh, in your own Bible. So we've been really enjoying this uh, study on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and today is really a continuation of last week's sermon, and so looking forward to that. A couple weeks ago, I went outside and was on a walk, and I looked up in the sky, and I saw something like this. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that before. Uh, I had never seen that in my life, and so I really thought, like, I've just discovered something, you know? Come to find out, I was not the first person to ever see this phenomenon. This is called a lunar halo. And these are kind of rare. They, they come out when it's really cold outside and, and when the moon is really bright. And so I had a really great time just sitting outside looking up at that the other day, not knowing what I was looking at. So, of course, like any person would, I go to Google and say, what is this thing I see in the sky? And it's really an interesting thing that happens is what happens is up in the atmosphere, you have all these little particles of ice floating around. And when the conditions are just right, when the ice is at the right place and the moon is bright enough, all of these ice crystals reflect the, the, the moon's light and it forms this perfect circle, right? What a strange thing. You know, there's, there's ice crystals all over the sky, but somehow the way it works, it makes this perfect circle that, that comes around the moon. And when you look up there and you see that, you see this circle, but it really kind of draws your eye right to the middle. Right? Because we know that outside circle is not the source of the light. Obviously, the source of the light is the moon, and these ice crystals are just doing their thing, and all of a sudden, they're reflecting this light in a really profound way. Well, as we've been reading on the Sermon on the Mount, this idea is a really prevalent idea in the sermon. So in the sermon, Jesus is saying, this is what my kingdom is like. This is what it's like when I have the freedom to rule in people's life, and he says, how am I going to go about growing that kingdom? How is Jesus going to build his kingdom here on earth? And he told us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, this is his strategy for building the kingdom. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So just like this outer ring is reflecting the light that's coming from the moon, Jesus says, that's my strategy for building my kingdom. I want to have people all over this world who are allowing their lives to reflect my glory, who I am, and all of a sudden as the world's watching, their eyes are going to be focused to me. You know, those ones reflecting my light, they're not the focus of this story. Jesus is the focus of this story, but the way he brings that attention to himself is by using people. He uses his people, and so he, this is his prayer. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What an awesome thing that we've been called to do, right? Sometimes life doesn't feel like there's a lot of meaning to our day, but every day we have the opportunity to live this out. Whatever you're doing in your day, you have the chance to live your life in such a way that Christ is magnified by the way that you live. 
Now, of course, you know, that's not everyone's focus of their day. And so a couple of verses later, Jesus said this, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here we see this connection that even though Jesus has called us to live our lights, live our lives in such a way that it reflects his goodness, we recognize not everyone is going to do that to the same capacity. Not because they can't, but because some people are going to choose to live in such a way that that is not the focus of their life. It doesn't mean they're not a believer. It doesn't mean they're not part of God's family or in his kingdom. But he does say, you know what, there's a way you can do this to a lesser degree, and there's a way you can do this to a great degree. I would think that the cry of our heart, and I believe for most of us, we would say the cry of our heart is to say, God, I want to do this in a great way. If this is what you've called me to do, I want to do it well. As a church, we want to do this well. We don't want to be a church that just to the least degree magnifies Christ and reflects the glory of God. We want to do it to the greatest degree that we can. And so as Jesus goes on in his sermon, he's giving us six ways that we can do this in a great way. So last week, Rance looked at the first three of them as we talked about that, and this week we're going to look at the last three. But as he's talking about how do we reflect him in a great way, he makes this big deal in verse 20 that it's not just about our external righteousness, but it's this internal reality. That greatness isn't just this outward thing that I do, but it's the reality of the inner change that God is bringing in my life. So this last week was Valentine's Day, and this gives a great example of this, right? So those of you who received a Valentine, I want you just to think, how would it move you in the morning if your husband came up to you and said, well, here's your Valentine's Day card, because I know if I didn't give it to you, you'd be really mad at me. And I also bought you these flowers, because I had to go to Ingalls, and I went in there, and I saw this person, they're like, you better get her some flowers, so... They said I should do it, so I also got you some flowers. And don't worry, because tonight I will take you to dinner, because I know that's the thing you're supposed to do on Valentine's Day. I mean, wouldn't that just move you? Wouldn't you just feel so treasured with all of this could, have to, should sort of language? This is what Jesus is communicating. In the same way, that wouldn't do a whole lot for you. God is saying, you know what, that doesn't do a whole lot for me either. I look out and I see a whole lot of people who are doing the, I'm supposed to do this. I'm doing this so you don't get mad at me. I'm doing this because it's what, I'm, what others say I should do, but it's not within my heart. Jesus is saying that is not the path to greatness. The path to greatness is when we are allowing God to transform our inner being. And so that all of these things that Jesus is talking about in the sermon become a part of the rhythm of our lives Not just because there's a rule that holds us to it, but because that is what is natural in our new desires and our new heart. So that's what we want to look at this morning. What are these other three ways? We looked at three last week. What are these last three ways that I can live in a great way to reflect the glory of God throughout my day? So let me pray for us, then we will begin in verse 33. Father, this is a radical plan you came up with to build your kingdom. Father, we very often can look at our lives and we feel like failures when it comes to building. Maybe we don't even think about that being a part of our day. Maybe we, maybe we know that's what we're supposed to be aiming at and we don't do it well. Father, we can become very discouraged on this endeavor and yet you continue to issue us this invitation and this calling to help you build your kingdom. 
So today, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray that if they're discouraged about their, their efforts at building your kingdom and living this great life, that God, today, you would encourage them with your grace that continues to lift us up when we fall. And I pray for those who are living intentionally and trying to build the kingdom every day of their lives. God, may you continue to build and, and change us from the inside out and continue to help us to see how we can more greatly reflect your glory to this world that so desperately needs to see it. So God, may you speak to us today. May these words become very practical and, and be based on application in our lives. We don't just want to hear what you have to say. We want to be changed by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So three ways we can live great lives to reflect the glory of God. Starting out in verse 33, we see this first idea. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your own head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than this is from the evil one. Now, this, these verses have been interpreted in a lot of different ways throughout the years. Sometimes people read that first line, uh, but I say to you, do not swear at all. And they take this to mean I should never make a promise. I should never take an oath. I should just never do that. But that's not what Jesus is saying. This isn't Jesus saying, don't ever promise anybody. Don't ever go to court and, and make an oath. That's not the issue. Because Jesus himself actually was under oath one time. Do you know that? At the end of Matthew, when he's coming to, to, the high, to the priest, and he puts him under oath, and Jesus answers his questions. So it's not saying that this is just something you are never to do. Instead, God, Jesus is attacking the heart of the individuals. Because back in this day, what was happening is people would say, when I make up oath or promise to you, it's only as serious as the thing I swear by. So if I swear by heaven, that's a pretty big one. Right, Because heaven's a holy place, that's a big place, that's a big one. If I swear by earth, that's a little less serious of a promise. You know, if I just swear by my own head, that's not really a huge deal. That's kind of one I can just kind of you know, change flippantly. Jesus is saying, this is such a bad way to look at this. You've lost the whole heart of this. Because Jesus is saying, everything you could ever swear by actually comes back to me. You want to swear by heaven? That's my throne. You want to swear by earth? That's my footstool. You want to swear by Jerusalem? That's my city. You want to swear by your own head? You are my creation. Everything you could ever think to swear by, however serious you want this to be, it's serious because I'm involved in this. And so he's trying to help them to rethink their thinking because they were getting stuck on this tricky language instead of actually following the heart. I was back, when I was back in middle school, I had this great friend named Brandon. We spent a ton of time together. We grew up playing sports together, and he was a great athlete. And we went to this basketball game at our high school in middle school. And maybe you've seen this challenge before. You get like 25 seconds to make a layup, a free throw, a three-pointer, and a half-court shot. And if you do it, you win $10,000, right? Pretty cool thing. Now, what are the odds of that actually happening? Very small, Right. And unfortunately, this happened to Brandon back before like social media because he probably would have been really famous because you would never believe it. But Brandon's grandma won the drawing to get to try to go do this shooting. Brandon's grandma couldn't pull that off. So she sends her like 13-year-old grandson out there. So he goes out there. The clock starts. He goes to the basket. He makes the layup. You know, the crowd's like, all right. He goes. He makes his free throw. He steps back. He takes the three-pointer and he misses it. But the ball comes right back to him. So he picks it up and he shoots the three-pointer. He's one shot away 
from winning $10,000. But how many of you have shot a half quarter, right? It's not really high odds. He gets the ball. He runs to half court. Okay, he's been shooting on this one. He runs to half court and launches it this direction. I'll tell you the end later. I'm just kidding. No, the ball goes in the hoop. The place goes absolutely crazy. We're freaking out. This middle schooler just won $10,000. Everybody's going wild. You know, it was such a fun moment. Well, that week, the car dealership who were sponsoring this, they contacted Brandon's parents and they said, we have some really bad news for you. In the contract rules, it says you have to make these shots on a basket. Well, that's one basket. He actually shot this last one on the other basket. So he doesn't actually win. Now, we lived in kind of a small town and everybody knew the dealership that was promoting this. That did not go well. So this dealership got all kinds of phone phone calls and visits that week. And guess what? Brandon ended up getting his check for $10,000. You see, but this dealership thought we can be tricky with our language here and save ourselves a lot of money. All right. Have you ever read like an insurance policy or a legal contract? Right. There's a reason you read it and don't have any idea what it just said. Because those people are paid a lot of money to learn how to be tricky with language. When you read them, it's almost like a where's Waldo of like, where's the loophole, right? It's in here somewhere. Where is it? We can find it. That's the problem that Jesus is addressing. He's not saying just don't ever make a promise. Don't, don't. He's saying the heart is so far off. I want you to have a heart that just says, if I say yes, it's yes. If I say no, it's no. There's no trickery in my language. I'm not being deceitful in the way I'm communicating. If I say yes, it means yes. This is what Jesus wants us to understand. So he's calling the people towards truthfulness and integrity of character, not just being somebody who swears by the correct words, right? Because the reality is oaths and contracts don't make you a truthful person. You think anybody's ever lied under oath before? Just because you're under oath doesn't all of a sudden change you to where it's impossible for you to lie. You can still be a liar. And yet Jesus is saying, people who reflect me in a great way are people who don't need the oath. They don't need the contract. They don't need the fear of that. They need a heart that has been transformed by honesty and a heart that is willing to be integral and live in integrity regardless of the way that, whatever that costs them. So he wants us to be a simple yes or no kind of people. And the reason for this is important. When you look at the end of this line, for whatever is more than that is from the evil one. So John 8 makes this clear. Jesus is talking to this group and he says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, or it could say he speaks his native tongue for he is a liar and the father of it. You see, when we speak in this tricky language with this heart of deceit, we are reflecting someone, but it's not our father. We're not reflecting the king when we're speaking with that deceitful type attitude. Instead, we are reflecting the evil one. The evil one is the source of lies. That is what's natural to him. That's the language that he speaks. And sadly, oftentimes, that can become our native language as well. We can become so good at being tricky in the ways that we communicate that it comes second nature to us and we don't even realize we're doing it. Instead, we are called to reflect one who is very different. Titus says this, 
in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. See the beauty of this? It doesn't just say God who does not lie, God who chooses not to lie, God who is disciplined enough to lie. It says it's not something God does. Truthfulness is something that he is. He cannot lie. He cannot go against his character. And what Jesus is saying is those who are in my kingdom, those who are great, this becomes the type of people they can be. When they are living out of this new nature, when they're living out of who God has made them to be, truthfulness is what they proclaim. So great kingdom citizens reflect the king by living honestly. We want to do this well. How do we do it? We start out by being truth tellers. It's not easy to be a truth teller. It's scary. It's dangerous. And the reality is sometimes we may choose in a moment to tell the truth and we think, how did that reflect the king? They don't know if I just lied or not. I'm a really good liar. They wouldn't have even known. That could have still reflected Jesus. But the reality is when we lie, that breaks relationships. It puts insecurity in that relationship. It puts fear of being found out in that relationship. Instead, we reflect the king when we choose to live honestly. Other people may not know, but that choice that's coming from a heart that is being made new reflects the king in a great and beautiful way. So number one way, number one way we can live greatly is through honesty. Then he goes on in verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Again, these are verses that maybe have been used in very uh, extreme ways in our world. And we want to be careful that we don't put ideas or words into what Jesus is actually communicating from, from right here. So this, this way of thinking, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this goes back way before the time of Jesus even. Okay, he, didn't, he didn't come up with this idea. This was a way that the world learned to operate. And now at first, that sounds so like bad, right? Like, I'm going to get him back. They took my eye. I'm going to get their eye back, right? But the reality is the law allowed for this kind of relationship not so we could get somebody back, but to protect the degree to which we got them back. Does that make sense? Because the reality is if somebody takes my eye, what do I want to take from them? Their eye, their leg, and their right arm, right? We want to step it up a little bit. If somebody got me, I want to get them back a little bit more. Also, what happens is it grows, right? And the law is very clear that if someone takes your eye, you get to take their eye. Because what usually happens in, in our world? Somebody takes my eye, all of a sudden my mom, my grandma, my third uncle, and my second cousin want to also take that person's eye. So it grows. So this is no longer an issue between me and that individual. It's my posse versus that posse over there, right? When you think about the whole Hatfield and McCoy rivalry, how did that start? One person and one person. But it grew. It grew from there. And so the law was not this thing in order to maximize our revenge on somebody. It was actually a protection to say, look, we don't have to get people back in this extreme, exaggerated way. But Jesus really goes on and he expands on this idea, and he really expands on it four different ways, okay? Because we need a lot of examples sometimes, because again, we like to be tricky in our language, 
and say, well, Jesus, maybe this scenario is a little different. And so Jesus gives four examples here of ways that this fleshes itself out. I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. All right, who's heard that said before? Usually it was in some context of your older sibling, like getting you and be like, listen, turn your other one too. I got to get this one, make it even, right? That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying this is a call for pacifism and a call to stand there while you get hit. People take this verse, abusers can take this verse and use this to control those that they are abusing. If you are experiencing abuse in a relationship, Jesus is not telling you to stand there and to take it. He's not telling you that doesn't matter. He's not telling you to be quiet about it. That is not what Jesus is saying. If that's what comes to our mind, or if that's what others are telling us, we are putting ideas and words into Jesus' mind that he was not communicating. Are we very clear on that? The focus here, again, is the heart. So Jesus says, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, he's not focused on the physical act. This idea of slapping is talking about someone who's insulting you. A slap in the ancient culture was the most dehumanizing, embarrassing, belittling act you could take upon somebody. Much worse than getting hit with a closed fist in that culture. So what Jesus is saying here is if somebody insults you, somebody's putting you down, somebody's belittling you, you don't have to fight back. You don't have to one-up that. And if they're choosing to insult you, you don't have to all of a sudden come at them as well. But we get this idea wrong because when we are insulted, when our integrity is questioned, when somebody puts us down, that ignites something deep within us. And often our first thought is, I am about to let loose on this individual. But what Jesus is arguing throughout all these verses is this big idea. Just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean you have to do it. Okay? So going back to that first idea, just because you have a right to take someone's eye doesn't mean you have to do it. Just because you feel this right within you that if you're going to belittle me, I'm about to let loose on you, that doesn't mean you actually have to do it. Because he goes on. If someone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So in the ancient world, there was kind of different layers of clothing, and it was a very weird system that, that this idea of you could sue for somebody's tunic, which was the outer garment, but you weren't allowed to sue them for their cloak, which was their inner one, okay? Because the idea is every, people, sometimes people, that was their only blanket. They would freeze without it. And so there was this really weird law that if somebody sues you for your coat, every night you have to go to their house and give it back to them because they need that for nighttime. And in the morning, they have to come back and bring it back to you. That's a very efficient system, right? Craziness. Who would really actually do that? Instead, Jesus is saying here, look, if somebody wants that, give them your other garment too. Now that puts you in a really vulnerable, bad position, doesn't it? But Jesus is again communicating this idea. What happens if, if, if somebody expects you to respond in a certain way and you respond with this generosity and this mercy that is completely different? What message does that send to the world as you're walking down the street and you only have one layer of clothes on because you've chosen to give your other two away? People stop and recognize that. People see that and say, there's something different about that scenario. Why didn't that individual fight for their rights? Instead, they allowed themselves to kind of be taken advantage of. 
They didn't demand what was rightfully theirs. Instead, they did something very unique. Then the final example he gives, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. So back in the ancient culture, the Roman soldiers had this really great uh, benefit that if they were getting tired, they could stop any Jewish citizen and say, hey, you have to carry my bag for the next mile. We're going on this long hike. I'm tired. You have to carry this. It didn't matter what was going on in your world. You didn't have time for that. You had to do it. And so the Jews learned how many steps is in a mile, right? Because they were going to do that many steps and then poof, I'm done, right? Because that was what was demanded. That was what is expected. And here Jesus does some, said something that seems so radical. If they demand you to go one, just go two. Now what's going to happen to those soldiers as they are watching you walk that second mile and you're not just like scowling at them? How often do they see that in their life? How often are they treated in a way that goes above and beyond what the law demands and requires? When somebody sees that, they say there's something unique about that individual, right? There's something within the heart of that person that is different than anything that is normal in my world. And so give to the one who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, don't turn away. So all these examples, we see this really just radical way of living, And Jesus is saying, don't demand, don't resist the one who's trying to take advantage of you in these ways. When somebody's trying to use you, when somebody's trying to get one up on you, you don't have to fight that. Just because you have the right to fight it doesn't mean you have to. Instead, show them mercy that they don't deserve. Show them generosity that they don't really have any right to actually receive. So again, I ask this question, why would we do such a radical thing? Because God, he demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love being the recipients of this generous mercy. Because generous mercy is radical. It's unique. The world does not know what to do with it. And so when people choose to live as great kingdom citizens and they choose to show off the king by showing generous mercy to other people, all of a sudden the world kind of zooms in. The world refocuses their eyes and they say, I don't really know what's going on, but this is weird. So we live as great kingdom citizens when we show off who the king is and his generous mercy. It's important for us to recognize that God never asks us to do anything he doesn't first do himself. When he asks us to live with this generous mercy that's not demanding our own rights, he's doing that because that is who he is. That's how he acts. That's how he has interacted with the world, and he's asking us to now do the same. So the third way we can be great kingdom citizens, starting in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemies and hate your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the just, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? So the situation that was happening here is this tricky word thing was still being used. And so when, when, the, when the law demanded that we love our neighbors, what's the obvious question to ask? 
Who's my neighbor? If I got to love people, let me shut this box as small as I can make it. And so throughout the time, throughout the years, there was different definitions for neighbor. Sometimes it was those within a certain geographical range from you. Then it became the nation of Israel and not those outsiders, right? There's all kinds of ways in our own lives we kind of define neighbor as well. It's those we like, those we have the same interests with, those are in our same uh, sphere of whatever, right? We like to define neighbor as well, if we're honest. This is, a, this is an area that's very easy within our own hearts to kind of become tricky in our language as well. So Jesus says, hey, I know a great way to avoid the tricky language problem. Let's just switch the language a little bit and say, love your enemies. Because that's a box that we can pretty clearly understand. We understand the box that encompasses my neighbors and my enemies is a big box. Everybody's going to fit into one of these two categories. And so Jesus is expanding this idea. This isn't cultural. It's not geographical. It's everybody. I am calling you to love everyone in this way. Now, sometimes when we think of this idea, love your enemies, that's a very out there idea, right? Okay, I'll try to figure out how to do that. But put yourself in this position. Think of people, we probably have people that come to mind when you use these descriptions. Well, hold on, pretend you didn't see that. Spoiler alert. When you're reading how he's describing his enemies, those who curse you, those who speak evil of you, who really hope for the worst for you, those who hate you, those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We probably have people that come to mind when we put some of these categories in. People who basically are out to use us. Whatever they can gain from us, that's what they want to do. They don't have our interest in mind. They're out to just hurt us, put us down, whatever. How are we supposed to interact with those people? Jesus says we are to love them. Now, he also gives us in this text some very clear ways to do that. He didn't just leave us to say, oh, do whatever you think love is for them, because our, our definition wouldn't be very great in this scenario. So Jesus says, I'm about to give you some things that are very clear of what it means to love your enemies. So in this text, we see some things. The first thing he says is pray for them. Now, if you really think about people who fit into that category, how often do they come across your prayer list? God, that guy who really just cursed me out today, that guy who really spitefully used me, I, just, I am here to come to the throne and pray for him. Maybe we're praying he gets like hit by a bus, or maybe we're praying that he finally changes or gets, you know, something comes. That's not what Jesus is actually saying here. But what happens is when we start to pray for these people, something changes. It's usually not them, but it is always us. When we start to pray for those who are hurting us in this way, God begins to do a work in our life. And we start to be able to see this person differently. Sometimes we get so fixated on, I can only see them for what they have done to me. But Jesus says, if we can just pray for that person, I think you're going to start to have a different perspective of them. You're going to start to see their hurts, their insecurities, all the things that have gone, troubled them in their life, and the love that they need to receive. So pray for that person. How do you love your enemies this week? Start to pray for them and see what God does in that. Second thing he says is speak well of them. As they curse us, we want to bless them. All right? So maybe sometimes we've just kind of learned, I can't talk about that person. Don't bring that person up. I'm going to lose it. Right? Just, just stop. Right? And we're this boiling kettle just ready to explode at the mention of that individual's name. 
So that's what Jesus is saying here is I want you to speak in a way that is speaking well of them. When you have the opportunity to talk about that person, don't go up to them. Do you know what they did to me? How do you speak well of them? Yes, all of us have a lot of things we could speak ill of one another about. But what is something we can speak well of that individual about? We may disagree on 83 things, but what are these things up here that we can speak well of them about? Now, this, again, goes back to prayer because sometimes we may need to pray to find those things. Because sometimes those things are not going to be very evident in our minds, but God will show them to us. So how do we begin to speak well of them? So especially, you know, there's a lot of people who face broken marriages or broken families. And all of a sudden, the way that we speak about those that we are broken with can really damage other people. So how are we intentional to speak well of those who oppose us? How do we build them up so that we're not dragging others into this mess? but we are building up even those who speak evil of us. Now think about how that would change a relationship. Somebody speaks evil of you and you go up to them and start to speak blessing and speak well of them. That's a very de-arming reality. And he goes on, he also says, I want you to act for their good. Don't just pray for them, don't just speak about them, but I actually want you to take action for their good. Because what did Jesus say? I send sun on the good and the evil. I send rain on the just and the unjust. If you had the opportunity for a day to be in charge of the sun and the rain, would you send it on your enemy? Would you water your enemy's field? Would you want it to go well for your enemy? Would you want your enemy to have a thriving crop this year? Would you do what was in your power to help them have that? That's very hard. And again, Jesus is wanting us to do this from a pure heart. Is that even possible? Well, without these first two changes going on in our life, it's really not. Prayer begins this inward change within me. As I speak of this individual, it's changing what I'm even hearing and thinking when it comes to that person. And all of a sudden, when it comes opportunity for me to act for their good, God can change me enough to where I can actually do that. Can you believe that? And I love this fourth one. It's the simplest one, but also just maybe the most profound. How do we love our enemies? You greet them, right? Jesus is super clear on this. He's not like, love is this vague thing. We don't really know. He says, no, you know what you can do? When you see him at Ingalls, actually say hello to him. Don't do the cart run where you're all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, they're here, right? Go out of your way to greet that person. That may be the most awkward thing you have to do this week. But when you see that person say, you know what, Lord, this is what you've asked me to do. I'm going to, by faith, trust you, and I'm going to do a radical thing because everything within my being wants to avoid this individual. That is not what great kingdom citizens do. Because great kingdom citizens fight for relationships, even of their enemies. Now, we do need to stop here and just remind ourselves that we can do all these things and that other person may never change. So don't be confused at our goal or our objective. We are not doing this to get the other person to finally behave. Instead, we are doing this because verse 45 says that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We do this so that we can look like our father. So that we can be sons and daughters who reflect who our God is. They may change, they may not change, but we are being called to live this way 
not because it ultimately makes our life better, not because it changes that other person, because when we do that, the world stops and says, you know what? That person has a resemblance to the king. That person resembles the character of God. So great kingdom citizens reflect the king by loving unconditionally. So now we come to this last verse, and unfortunately in our Bibles, it just kind of tags it into this paragraph. It really should be its own paragraph. Verse 48 says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now this fits right here in this idea of love, but actually it's a little bit separated, and Jesus is saying, hey, do you know these six topics that we just talked about? All six of these conclude right here. This is the... the mic drop moment for the first half of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I've just told you all of this so that you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, if you're a perfectionist, that is a terrifying reality. We read the word perfect and we think never fail, no mistakes, 100% all the time, right? What, 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 this is the same word that is used for the Old Testament sacrifices. They were unblemished. They were whole right? Jesus is saying, I want you to be an individual who's whole. I don't want you to be an individual who's like got it pretty well going on, but actually in your heart, there's still this extremely ugly reality of hatred towards your enemies. That's not going to lead to great kingdom citizens. I want you to be whole, mature, complete, grown up, just as your father in heaven is perfect. A couple observations I want to make as we close on this. This is a future reality. You see that? You shall be perfect. So Jesus is pointing out this future thing, okay? There's two things that make that important. First, he's saying this is a goal that we are moving towards. He's not saying like like right now you have it, so just relax. He's saying, no, continue to strive and move towards this perfection that demonstrates your Father. Move towards it every single day. Strive to make this your aim in life. So it's a future goal that we're moving towards, but it also is this future reality that will be one day ours. One day we will experience this fully. And one other thing I want to say about this is this is a plural word. This isn't a you, this is a you. So as we go back to this picture, if the moon is shining on one ice crystal, you're probably not going to notice that among all the stars. But when you have all these ice crystals lined up in just the perfect place and all of them together are reflecting this reality, we get this beautiful phenomenon that draws our eyes to the King. So may we be a church who lives in this way. May we be great kingdom citizens who together move towards reflecting our King in a beautiful, beautiful way. So we're going to end a little bit different this morning. As we talk about this idea of us collectively together magnifying the Lord, if you have a bulletin, you've noticed uh, our fourth prayer request for this year is that we would build the kingdom together with Emmanuel Baptist Church. And today we have the Thacker family here with us. So David and Dana are helping to lead the church out at Kinston, North Carolina. And so I've invited David just to have a few minutes to just give us a little highlight of what's going on at IBC. So as we are praying for this church, what's happening there? And I want us to think about it in terms of this right here. As we are collectively building the kingdom, it's not just this church, but it's all of God's people from around. So I'm going to invite David up, uh, and he's going to share with us for a few minutes. Well, it's great to be 
with you guys this morning uh, and worshiping alongside. Almost a year and a half ago, <clears throat> you sent our family out to Eastern North Carolina uh, to go and help Emmanuel Baptist Church. But thankfully, you didn't send us alone. You also sent Frank and Jasmine Klein with us as well. Because what we talk about with this idea and this principle is this reality that the more individuals that are reflecting the character and life of Christ, the more others will see the wholeness of who he is. And that's really been our prayer as we've been out at Emmanuel. We've been blessed to have y'all send a couple of work teams as well as the teens came out and has served twice in helping different projects. We have another team from here that's coming to Emmanuel here in the next couple of weeks uh, that we are so grateful for and looking forward to being with. Um, we have had the opportunity when Frank and Jasmine committed to coming out for a year to evaluate and just to serve the church. But also remember for Frank and Jasmine, this was an opportunity for them to evaluate, is God calling us into full-time ministry? And so with, we are so grateful. Last week, uh, we held a vote with the church to approve Frank to be an associate pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church. That was unanimous uh, consensus that as they have watched their lives over this last year, they've been able to affirm this is an individual that we, we recognize what God is doing in his life and the opportunity that he will have to begin uh, a more consistent um, preaching rotation between he and I, uh, as well as he will continue to work with the youth as he has always been. But we are so grateful for this picture of the body coming along together for opportunities that you guys have had to come and stop by. We've had individuals that have come out just to visit with the church and just to get to know individuals with the church because they keep asking why in the world would one church send couples in their church all the way across the state to come and to be with us. And one of the reasons that we get the opportunity to talk about this that comes up, last November, Ben came out um, we did something similar here a few years ago, but we had what's called an AIM conference. And so for two days, we invited those in the church that wanted to come out and to begin to look at what are we aiming at as a body? How do we reflect the character of God in the Kinston community and the surrounding area? And what came out of that conference was the image that you see behind me. So that at the very core and center of it is this star, to recognize that Emmanuel is simply God with us. That Christ came in the flesh to live out the Father to the world. So this is what he's like. This is how he lives. This is his character. And at the core of everything we do, that is our focal point for Emmanuel Baptist Church. How do we fulfill that? Well, we fill that by individuals loving God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that that is the great commandment. How do we help people to see that fleshed out? We interact with them. We live life together, and we talk about the principles of God so that out of their love for God, they will then begin to love others with the overflow of their relationship with the Father. And they'll do what's in other people's best interest. They'll figure out creative ways to love and to minister to them. And then out of that love for those that want something more and say, help me to live like you're living. Help me to understand God the way that you understand God. 
Then we help them by coming alongside and making disciples. And that's a call to the church at large. So as you go forward and you think about Emmanuel Baptist Church or those that are coming to serve in the next couple of weeks, how do you pray? You pray that this will be the core foundational principle for the body in Kinston. Because for the last year and a half, what we have been doing is pouring a whole lot of time in walking alongside particularly the leadership team and their spouses. So that as we get ready to go into this next month, The question is, will they catch this vision? This is not just about our family coming and doing this or Frank and Jasmine coming and doing this, but the future of the church depends on individuals saying, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that reflection. And our prayer is that as we start this year and the leadership team begins to create and build relationships with the intentional focus on how do we help others become disciples of Jesus. That's where the future of the church is. And so pray, because if you've ever been a part of investing in somebody else's life, the first step can be absolutely terrifying. Who am I? What if they start to ask questions that I have no idea about? All kinds of things flood your mind to think, could I really help someone else change to reflect the glory of God? But we recognize that without individuals catching this aim, there is no future for Emmanuel Baptist Church. One of the comments that we've gotten over and over in this last year is we've been just talking about the character of God. And kind of as you explore the Sermon on the Mount, this was Jesus' dilemma. You've heard this about me. This is reality. One of those comments in in our, our leadership meetings has been over and over. I've been in the church a really long time. I feel like I'm learning a new religion. Why have we not been taught this? Why have we not focused on the character of God rather than all the things you're supposed to do and not supposed to do as good Christians? We recognize there's been a lot of change that's happened in this last year and a half, but this is a huge step as we pray going forward. As individuals step out in faith to say, Lord, use me to help others to become disciples of Jesus. So that together, whether in Robbinsville or in Eastern North Carolina, we have the privilege to reflect the glory of God to the world around us. And it is always more beautiful when we're doing that together. So while we're all the way across the state, I want you to know the vision and the aim is the same. We haven't created some kind of fun strategy to create church growth in Kinston. No, we help individuals become whole so that they can then invest and help others to become whole. That's our greatest prayer. And we are so grateful for your support, so grateful for the prayers. The the physical visits are an absolute joy. And it's always good to be home with you. So we thank you so much for this partnership. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you have given us an awesome privilege and opportunity to be a part of reflecting your character to the world. 
Father, change us, mold us. May we be willing to grow and continue to change so that the fullness of your beauty will be shown off around us. Father, we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope that you were encouraged by the teaching of God's Word. If you have questions or would like more information about our church, you can find us at www.robbinsvillefbc.org or call the office at 828-479-3423. God bless you and have a great day.